This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassuni. One of the ways that platforms like Uber and Lyft ensure good customer service is by allowing riders to rate their drivers on an app. If drivers want to keep working, they've got to keep those ratings up. But anyone who's been in a service job knows that customers can be difficult and sometimes even dangerous. So how can workers in the gig economy exert any kind of control over their jobs when they're at the mercy of digital bosses? That's the question that Wharton management professor Lindsay Cameron wanted to dig into in her latest study. It's titled Expanding the Locus of Resistance, Understanding the Co-Constitution of Control and Resistance in the Gig Economy. It was co-authored with Hatem Rahman from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and published recently in the journal Organization Science. Dr. Cameron's here today to talk about the study. Welcome, Lindsay. It's great to be here. So anything related to the gig economy right now is really timely when you consider how many people are in the gig economy. I just saw a Pew survey statistics from August that said 16% of Americans have earned money on a gig platform. And I think that really speaks to the scope. So first of all, let's talk about what you define as worker resistance. And second, what made you want to study worker resistance? So the gig economy, I love to say, Purchase above its weight class and that it, you know, 90% of Americans have heard of it, you know, more than three quarters have been in one of these vehicles before. It's, as you're mentioning, a lot of individuals have earned money on this platform. Like, it's amazing how in 10 years it's become almost ubiquitous or embedded, not only in American life, but really across the world. And so I became interested in the ride hailing industry you know, because I was watching a lot of people who had lost their jobs during the Great Recession, and they were doing this type of gig or independent work as a way to close the gap because mm-hmm. they weren't able to find work in the traditional labor market. So as part of this this broader study, it's a comparison between uh, two different companies, one that we call Ride Hill and the other one that we call Bind Work. And in this comparison, we're looking at sort of how do workers resist on these two different types of platforms. So there's two different types of work. You know, ride hailing is what we consider is ride hailing. It's a closed labor market. You turn on the app and like you drive and there are ratings that sort of are evaluating performance. On a platform like Find Work, it's an open labor market. So you list what your skills are online and customers reach out to you and say, hey, I'd like you to edit this website or write this code, this source code for me. So we like this, I, we, me and my co-author got together because there's two different types of, of work, more, one more simple, one more complex, and to do the comparison between the two. And how we came to this study around resistance, which is, which is the question we've asked, is there's been a fair amount of research, but I'd even say just public attention to this overt acts of resistance. So that's what we think of as strikes, as organizing of work stoppages, you know, the mainstays of the labor unions. You even mentioned in your paper some examples that I think all of us are familiar with, like the waitress spitting in your hamburger or the customer service or the cashier walking away from a customer that's rude, just simply walking away from them. So those are the kind of things that we think of, that the layperson can think of as worker resistance. But this is a little different when you're talking about gig platform work. 
Right. So the examples that you came up with are more not the, the overt resistance or not the strikes. It's the covert resistance. Right. So what do people do behind the scenes? And what's really interesting here at the gig economy is that there's not a boss. You know, typically it's the customer that's the boss. So what is the equivalent of spitting in someone's food, you know, or their drink in, in the gig economy uh, when there's not even a manager over your shoulders? So this is sort of the comparison and the question we were looking at um, in the study. And I had firsthand experience in this because I also worked on and off as a driver for three years in the ride hailing industry. That is dedication. You actually worked as a driver. I did. I did. On and off. I wasn't full time, <laughs> but I did get experience about what it was like. So you, you were literally going to put us in the driver's seat of this research. What are the key findings in the study? So customers have the control of the digital boss is what you're, you're talking about. So typically, when you think of a service interaction, you're going up to a cashier and you're paying for your item and then you're gone. But one of the, the things that's so interesting about gig work is it extends this service encounter. So you have the amount of time where you've just requested the ride. Then you have the time where the person's actually in the car with you when you're driving. Then you have all this time afterwards, you know, where, where there's the rating. And are you going to sort of, uh, you know, push back against that rating? We call that mediated retaliation. So because the work process gets elongated, there are different types parts of the, the service encounter where there's more or less control by the platform and the customer, and there's more or less latitude the workers have for resistance. So that's what this research looks about. It pulls, you know, it looks at the elongation of the service encounter mm -hmm. and, and where workers have latitude to resist and where they have less latitude to resist. What I find interesting about the study is that it does bring something new to the table. It highlights how gig workers actually manipulate that algorithm so that they can get back some control from those customers. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how they do that and then what the lesson is here for companies like Uber and Lyft and those other platforms that really do rely on digital bosses? So it depends on what part of that elongation of the service account are telling you about, about what they can do to resist. Mm -hmm. So it's very beginning with before the before they even picked up the customer, they started the, the project on fine work. They can they can vet the customer. Do you seem like you're going to be difficult, Angie? I'm just not even going to take the ride. I'm not, not going to take the assignment. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't. You might mess up my rating. Right. But, but while we're in the middle of the work where the customer actually has the most control, well, then the, the worker has to use more finesse. And there might be times where they'll just be like, oh, I need to end the assignment early. They feel like you're being difficult. And that way they can preserve their rating. Sometimes they'll even pay you back their money to make sure you're happy, but they can get out of getting a low rating. But there's actually times where they'll try to trick you, dupe the customer, dupe you into canceling early. Um, They'll hold the work hostage and won't give you a rating or won't give you the work until you promise a good rating. So this is where they have sort of less latitude. And when the work is complete, there's much limited, uh, much limited uh, latitude for resistance. There's even less. So really, we only see that they can do what we call mediated retaliation. I'm going to give you a low rating, even if you're if I think you're going to give me a low rating, or we can file what we call Hail Mary disputes. Mm -hmm. and, and the purpose of these disputes are more symbolic. They're just more to let the platform know, hey, there was a problem. Not that they think it'll actually fix anything with the customer, but it'll be less likely they'll be kicked off because of it. So this is trying to give you a sense about all the different resistance tactics workers have throughout this elongated service account. 
Do you think that the platforms uh, are aware of these kinds of tactics? And also, what does it mean for them? What can they do about it? Is there anything they should do about it? So it feels like while technically the platforms could be aware of these, we don't actually think they are. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all these back and forth dialogues, you know, to make sure you give me a good rating. Oh, can you break up this project into small projects so I get more ratings is the, you know, the, the purpose behind that. And we don't think the companies are monitoring this behavior and they're sort of letting it go. You know, and, and asking the bigger questions about what you think some of the implications are, it shows that whenever you're going to have control, I mean, this type of work is is increasing the amount of control over workers, both through the algorithm, both through the customers. Workers are always going to find ways to have resistance, to have agency. Right. And, and the more workers understand how work is being managed by the algorithm, by the customers, the more space they can give themselves to maneuver around their digital bosses. They are finding ways to sort of untangle this and say, how does how can I make this work for me? How can this benefit me? Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense because as you point out in the paper, they don't even have a manager that they can go complain to or get support from. Right, exactly. So those are some of the implications I see for workers. Mm-hmm. I think what the implications are for companies that rely on these, these bosses, one of the reasons this work works is because the customer becomes the new boss. Right. But there, there are limitations of having your customer as your boss because the customer doesn't care as much. They just want to get the service encounter done with. They just want their work done. They want the ride done, the, the coding done, as opposed to a manager where you develop this deeper human relationship with. And so if a company has really strict deactivation policies, like you will be kicked off if your rating falls below this and there's no way to sort of get back into the company's good graces, you might kick out people who are actually really good workers because you just had a customer who doesn't care and just gives a low rating just because they're going to give a low rating. So, you know, I think one of the studies shows is the flexibility that that these companies need to have around using these evaluations as the final arbitrator of performance. And I I just got back from uh, Africa last week, sort of interviewing people who are on these these platforms. And I was pleased to see that the algorithmic control isn't as tight there as it is. And we see it more uh, um, in the global north because there are more sort of cultural contexts that need Mm -hmm. to be taken into account. And the customer is really just not putting a lot of thought into their rating. That makes a lot of sense. You know, as I'm thinking about this, there have been so many articles recently um, about customers abusing uh, frontline workers in particular, especially during this pandemic. I mean, the New York Times and uh, NPR recently did a piece about pharmacy techs and pharmacists. Taking, right, taking abuse from customers. Is there anything implicit here in your study that is a takeaway for consumers? You know, to be honest, I just don't know if consumers actually have enough of the political will or the Mm -hmm. impetus to actually do anything you know (laughs) even when I (laughs) right right and you know particularly when there's so many other alternative options out there they're like I'm not getting what I want let me just go to this different platform right you know the best the best I can say is to know that ratings matter but even more than the ratings, it's the care and the concern in these one-off interactions. Because, you know, for us as consumers, it's like, do we get our groceries delivered? But for this other person, you know, they're fighting traffic, they're waiting in lines, they're ha- you know, remember what it's like at the beginning of the pandemic and there are 30 minute, hour long lines to get into grocery stores. And it's about how do you 
make the transaction exchange as simple and as straightforward for the for the worker as possible. And to tip well, you know, I'm glad that many of these uh, platforms now have automated tipping where, you know, you can just hit yes and accept that tip amount because those tips matter a lot in boosting up the wages. Mm-hmm. Just be nice, right? Just be nice. I know, right. <laughs> but sometimes we have a hard time. The New York Times article pointed out. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to read the very last statement in your paper because I think it's a good one. Quote, as the nature of technology and work changes, we anticipate the relationship between control and resistance will continue to evolve in ways that will require innovative data collection and theory building opportunities. Now, I read that it left me with a little bit of a chill. It feels very foreboding. Um, what do you see as you continue to, to study this topic? What do you see? Are, are there some particular areas that you think need immediate attention? Well, you know, the, the one of the reasons I, I find this sort of gig economy work so fascinating is just it's a major disruptor. It's a mm-hmm. disruption in different industries. It's a disruptor in how we as consumers live our lives. And so that's why I'm, I'm you know, it's going to continue to change. Nothing can stay static. You know, two projects, you know, that I'm working on now that I think are, are really interesting is, you know, this paper is about co- covert resistance. I'm now looking at overt resistance, particularly the decline now movement in DoorDash where you find workers sort of gathering up a voice on on these forums. And they're like, no, we're going to decline these uh, food delivery rides until we can try to sort of, you know, drive up the prices we can earn a higher wage. And, you know, this studying control and resistance is very much part of of labor studies. This is where sort of this vein, this paper fits in. But I'm, I'm also interested in how do workers find choice and agency in this work? And not just schedule flexibility, because this is what we talk about all the time. But I think there's something fundamentally uh, different about how this work is structured that lets people, you know, breathe easier. And and that was one of the reasons why I was recently, you know, in West Africa collecting data to Mm -hmm. see how this work, you know, there is a platform, but how is this work experienced differently, even though the platform is the same across all these different, you know, different geographic boundaries. It's definitely a brave new world. Without a doubt. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And please come back when you uh, finish that study with your the information you gathered in West Africa. I'd love to hear about it. Thank you. I sure will. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more Just Like It online on our website, where you can also find all our articles on the latest research and business. For Knowledge at Wharton, I'm Angie Bastiani. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.